Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is a writer whose extremely prolific life has led to a wonderful range of books from the Mosquito Coast to Happy Days in Oceania to uh, his wonderful travel accounts of traveling on trains in Patagonia and in China. He's both a travel writer and a novelist of extraordinary imagination. We please welcome author Paul Theroux to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for coming here. Nice to be here, Sedge. Thank you very much. What was your first train ride? First train ride, I remember very distinctly. It's a funny question. This book's about food, but my first train ride <laughs> was, uh, was when I was seven, and I went from Boston to Hartford, Connecticut, Boston, Massachusetts to Hartford, Connecticut. My parents put me on the train. I had a comic book, and they said to the conductor, uh, he's getting out at Hartford. Watch him. And I looked out the window, and they were gone. My parents were gone. And, the next, and then I hours went by and I looked out the window and there was my aunt and uncle outside the window and I thought this is great <laughs> you just sit here and you know no one's arguing no one's complaining no trouble you just sit there. it was a wonderful ride it was it was a summer day that was the first um, uh, experience of seeing tobacco growing we got out the train and I tobacco was grown in Connecticut saw a tobacco leaf my aunt said that's a tobacco leaf and did you want to pluck it, smoke it? Changed my life. No, I, it, she, I put it in the back seat of the car. She said, they dry it. I put it in the back seat of the car, and I thought, I'm going to dry, I'm going to dry and cure this tobacco leaf. <laughs> 20 years of my life, I uh, was drying and curing tobacco leaves, <laughs> <laughs> stuffing my mouth with them. Smoking is great, Smoking is great, by the way. Did, did you ever smoke? No. It's great. Do you, have you given it up? I gave it up. I gave it up. But, but, but uh, uh, non-smokers always say it's horrible. Slip, and it is horrible. It's horrible for non-smokers, slipstream smokers, and it's fatal. It gives you cancer. But, the, but when you're doing it, it's wonderful. That's why it's hard to quit. How long ago did you quit? Uh, I quit when I was writing The Mosquito Coast. Uh, I was typing The Mosquito Coast, and it, the, the exp- the, I just smoked a lot. I smoked a pipe then. And I, my skin it was uh, supurating through my skin. Also, I was developing what... Milroy, the magician, called Smoker's Face. I was my, my, you could look at my face and say, you, you can see a, a five people. If there's a smoke, you say, that one smokes. Just It shows on your face because your circulation's uh, diminished. And you, you're, you have this papery look on your face. So I was getting Smoker's Face, 81, 1981. So when did you start to eat a lot then? No, I got interested in my body, though. I mean, it's interesting. It, 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 I, I thought, okay, I gave up smoking. This is willpower. Uh, my body is going to be my hobby. From now on, my body is going to be my hobby. And I'm going to put things in it and see what happens. And I, I've, I'm not smoking, but I'm going to just try. So I began stuffing things in my mouth and saying, that's interesting. I feel a little more energetic. Eating certain kinds of food, high fiber food. I'm talking about food now, not you know, other things. Um, <laughs> and I, I began experimenting with my little body. And it, it, it really interested me how I gave up meat, for example, and then I gave up dairy products, then I gave up fish, then I was just eating, uh, you know, macrobiotic food, and, and um, it does have a definite effect, and I began to see a connection between health and food. Now, I know that's a pretty obvious thing to say, but 
the food that I began eating was Bible food and th the food mentioned in the Bible. And it struck me that there really is a strong connection between the food that, th that the Bible says you shouldn't eat, like the food in Leviticus, and stuff that uh, people do eat in the Bible, loaves and fishes and uh, the bread that's mentioned in Ezekiel. The, uh, the recipe for, for bread is in the Bible, right? Oh, there's a good recipe for bread in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel uh, chapter 4, verse 9. I'm not religious, by the way. <laughs> but I tell you, but, but, there's a, but yes. But you have the Bible up there on the shelf with your Rombauer and Julia Child? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. <laughs> and have you made the Ezekiel bread? Yes, I made it. I, I cheated. I made it in a, in a bread machine. <laughs> and I put a little yeast in it. Yeah. So not totally unleavened. No, it's not totally unleavened, but uh, a lot of laughter with bread machine. But I, I got this bread machine two years ago, and I haven't bought a loaf of bread since. And you make the, the very healthy bread. I mean, the, the, your book, your new book, Milroy the Magician, is about a man who believes that Americans and, and indeed people around the world are killing themselves, killing ourselves by what we eat. Uh, and this man has magical powers. He can turn people into greasy gallops and globs of chicken fat. Uh, he also likes to look at the contents of his stomach after sort of regurgitating it through a nasal tube. Um, is this a curious, I mean, this, this must have been part of the fascination of your body and how it processed food. Yes, as I said, my body was my hobby. His body is his hobby. This thing about um, looking at the contents of your stomach, I, I, I saw, in, do you know Frank Harris, My Life and Loves, him? him? Um, he wrote a uh, quite famous at the time. It, I guess, didn't get to San Francisco, but <laughs> but he got to San Francisco. But uh, my life and loves by Frank Harris, uh, and he was a biographer and man about town. He used to take a tube and um, and then empty his stomach and just look at it and see. Well, ah, this is breaking down nicely. Uh, now that's no. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna stop eating that. I know it's fairly revolting, but um, <laughs> he did it. And uh, these are the adult equivalent of science fairs. Right. It is very true. And, but, but my character is, uh, is seriously interested in food and says Americans, uh, that virtually everything Americans eat is carcinogenic. We eat very bad food, and we eat too much of it. And then when we see a country with a problem, Somalia, Kenya, I don't know, Ecuador, we tend to, or Bosnia, send them food. What those people need is food, send them food. They need some food. Send them some food. We, we, the idea of sending guns or food is quite a big thing. And food as an answer, um, rather than a problem in itself, is um, kind of an American obsession. So I thought I would go into that. As a novelist, uh, did you ever think that you would run out of being able to describe food in, in any way? I mean, uh, food as a topic, food as a... When you, when you started the book, did you see that there would be a 400-page novel filled with, with humor and magic ahead of you? No, I didn't, actually. But, it, but it, you could uh, go on. I could go on a lot longer, I suppose, about food. I wrote about food in the Mosquito Coast. I wrote about it in Chicago Loop. I think this is the last word about it. But the, but the idea of, of um, food... Milroy says, I don't eat anything with a mother. I don't eat anything with a face. I don't need anything with legs, nothing with a face, nothing with a mother. Those are words to live by. And words that you, you practice now. 
Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And it's uh, the person you see before me, you, <laughs> is a result of that, yeah. I'd like to hear a bit of Milroy, the magician, to get a flavor of, of this. Uh, and this is uh, when your magician character has gone to uh, audition to be on a children's television show in, in Boston. And he encounters one of the producers and he's able to decipher something that's going on in, in, the, in the household. Yes, uh, he, he's, he's, he's talking to uh, some people on a television. He takes over a television show run by a man called Mr. Phyllis. Mr. Phyllis is a kind of wicked little guy um, who uh, patronizes children, Mr. Phyllis. But anyway, he, uh, so Milroy's talking to um, the producer and says, uh, I've got an uncanny feeling that your birthday is October 22nd. Right, that's amazing, Miss Spitler said. How did you guess? It's not a guess. I knew. I'm psychic. You probably hate that word, but it's my birthday too. The woman was so pleased, she patted the chair beside her and said, tell me more. You're so kind, Milroy said. The number three, he was wagging his fingers in the air and squinting as though he, he were getting signals from the sky. I'm receiving the number from your pulsations. Three, uh, three has a strong meaning for you. I have three children, Miss Spittler said. The third one, Milroy said, you're very concerned about your... Your third child, I am receiving a tea. His name is Thomas, the woman said. Yes, that would be it, Milroy said. I am sensing a sharp pain in the stomach. Here. And he touched the front of his shirt. The woman said, My son Tom has been diagnosed as having diverticulitis. I haven't slept since I heard. I almost didn't make it here today, and I'm supposed to be running your audition. It's very important that you came today and that we met, Milroy said. And he took the woman's hand. He had once held my hand that way. This is narrated by a 14-year-old uh, uh, girl. He had once held my hand that way. She's a kind of sidekick. You know, nothing wicked happening here. It's as though he had tugged the soul, my soul, out of my fingertips. Milroy said, I want you to stop worrying about your son. I keep picturing him in pain and all those antibiotics, Miss Spittler said, and drinking barium. I can feel that, Milroy said closing his hand on her fingers. But you need a second opinion, your own opinion. All I know is the doctor told me, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about diverticulitis. Your doctor is overweight, Milroy said. Why would he care about bulgy pouches in his colon? The woman said nothing, but she was looking slitty-eyed and probably thinking, yes, our doctor's kind of fat. <laughs> Milroy said, massive gas buildup, rectal tenderness, constipation, Crampy gut, nausea, bloating. Tom's had just about all those symptoms. Diverticulitis is a McIllness, and Tom is full-figured too, Milroy said. He likes fat burgers with big soft buns, hot dogs, fruit loops, fizzy drinks, sugary snacks. He's like most youngsters, and like most youngsters, this low-residue diet is not reaming his colon. <laughs> the doctor has him on antibiotics, Bitter herbs sound familiar? Numbers, the book, the Bible, 9-11. The inner bark of Paudaco is a natural antibiotic. Boil it and get him to drink buckets of it. After the inflammation has eased and his colon's open, get some whole food into him. He needs fiber, he needs garlic. No sugar, no fat. Milroy had lowered his head and was looking into the woman's eyes. Diverticulosis is pre precipitated into full-blown destructive diverticulitis 
by diet, too much junk food, not enough roughage. And if Tom is ill, then he's interrupted, and that's about it. <laughs> Paul Theroux, reading from Milroy the Magician, published by Random House. This is a book that is filled with body functions, with smells, with sounds, with uh, all the sort of comments that often get left out of literature. Yes, there's a lot of flatulence, crepitation. <laughs> Although, you know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of law, there's a lot of food law. Uh, Milroy says, and this is true, that if, if you eat a lot of beans, you, you, you become, um, you, you develop a kind of immunity to gas. You can, you're essentially gasless. And, and yeah, the bean eaters uh, are not flatulent or crepitatious. Um, the other point, I suppose, <laughs> on convention is that pe when people have read this book, people reading this book say that they become very, very conscious of, of what they're eating. And they tend, around you know, page 73, they begin to change their diet or to think, mm, I wonder wh whether I should eat that hamburger. Maybe I shouldn't eat anything with a mother. And they, uh, uh, they, do, they, they change, it's kind of funny. But it's not a joke. I, I needed a text, I needed a man with a message. I hate the Elmer Gantry type of book where you have a preacher and he's, um, He's a, he's a secret drinker, you know, the man who's railing against drinking, or the Jimmy Swaggart, who's the, base, the hypocrite. I wanted to write a preacher about a preacher who's not a hypocrite. I have to say that probably at about page 61, I stopped eating the biscotti that I was eating at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's very persuasive. I'm not sure what I'm going to do for lunch today. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the, also the idea of having uh, a magician. I mean, in a way, a writer is a magician. I mean, you have this magician stabbing people with swords and baskets and of course no one's hurt and people disappear and uh, it's it's one of the most credible magicians I've come across in theater and literature but there's also something about being a writer where you're a magician I mean you can do this at the typewriter that's nice of you to say but, but you know there is sort of uh, there's a way in which a writer transforms things but mothers are magicians I was thinking there's something about being a mother uh, a mother prepares food then serves the food then they eat the food together, and there's a transformation there. Anyone who's dealing with food is doing it too. The creative people are taking a blank thing, paper, canvas, or whatever, and putting something on it. I thought that band you had earlier, the Hot Club, there's a silence in this room. Suddenly they start playing. They're terrific. They are terrific. And suddenly the whole place is vibrant, and th there's a kind of magicianship there. It's almost like a miracle of something produced out of nothing. That's what magicians do, and I think, yeah, writers do it. Thomas Mann... Thomas Mann's family called him Zalbera, Zalbera, the, the magician, and he signed his letters Z. One of, the, uh, one of your books was about traveling through Oceania and, and commenting on uh, South Sea Islanders, particularly in Fiji, uh, who can be so large because they have diets of spam and pork. Um, did you ever find exceptions to, to uh, the sort of Western influence of cuisine in the, in the South Seas? There are exceptions. The strangest thing is that where people eat spam, they have a cannibal past. It's as though spam is a kind of substitute. <laughs> for long pig. Short pig. Anyway, uh, the great exceptions, yes, in the Trobriand Islands uh, off the coast of New Guinea, they, uh, they have a kind of Pritikin diet. Yeah. They're very, they're very healthy people, uh, but they, they die young for other reasons, malaria and bacterial infections. 
Do you, uh, when you set out to write a, a travel book and spend weeks and months on the road or on the rails or on, on, the, on the seas, is it, is it about es escaping or is it about you know, trying to find something? The, pl the pleasure of travel, uh, of travel as it is, not writing about it, is, is getting away. It's escape. I came from a large family, and I, I think travel is about getting away from your family, family <laughs> and, and people breathing down your neck and saying, well, what are you going to do for a living, and how are you going to support a family, and, and uh, you need a haircut, yeah, all that stuff. You know? and, uh, I, so I think there's a, there's a kind of, that travel is partly fleeing and partly pursuing. It's also being in a nice place. It's sometimes just about sitting under a tree reading a book. I was recently in uh, Sardinia, and I thought, I'm in Sardinia, but I was reading. I wasn't writing anything, I was just reading. I thought, this is a great place to read. Granted, it's kind of hard to get to Sardinia. I, I took a, a ferry from uh, Corsica, and I had taken a ferry from France to Corsica. So I'm sitting in the middle of, of Sardinia just reading a book, and th there was an African there, and I said, where do you come from? And he said, Senegal. I said, how long, it's a little town. Where, how long have you been here? He said, three years. We're talking Italian, but, I, you know. I said, so you ever get home? He said, yeah, every, so, you know, when I sell, he's selling trinkets. I said, well, you know, get back to my, he said, I said, well, did you say, how many moli, two wives? They're in uh, Senegal, in his village. He's got six. He said, how many kids? Poco, two, six. Uh, so, Poco. Anyway, yeah, I was reading. He's selling trinkets. And I said, it's a guy from Senegal, guy from Medford, Massachusetts. We're both there. That's what travel is to me. Each of you trying to get away from your families. I guess so. Not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, traveling takes up such an enormous chunk of your life. You conclude your book about riding across China on the train by saying it had become more than just travel, it had become a significant part of your life. Um, when, are you aware when that transition is made? It happens, uh, uh, th this transition, it, uh, I mean, that's very, very astute of you to remember that, because that's what it is. I mean, I, I, I'm joking about travel, but not entirely, that there's a way in which travel is a process of life. And it's the same thing is true with writing. Sometimes people say, they talk about writing, and their view of writing is that writing's a job. It's something that, uh, that I do, and then, you know, I get really sick of it, or I'm not making enough money, I do something else. But actually, I don't distinguish between, writing is just something that I've always done, and I, I've never regarded it as work. It's certainly not work, and travel's not work either. It's just, it's something that I've done. I'm not, I don't want to be too sort of cosmic and mysterious about it, but it, a trip can take you over, and it, it then becomes, when I, I, I was traveling around China and making notes for a year, f between 1986 and 87, before the Tiananmen Square massacre, and I felt that I understood the place, and when the book came out, people were saying, ah, he doesn't like the Chinese, he says they spit all the time, you know, the Chinese national anthem, people hiking, and I said, uh, I thought I couldn't understand, I was there, you know, oh, these people are in New York City reviewing it, he doesn't seem to like them, and then the, the massacre at Tiananmen Square happened, and then everyone was down on the Chinese, and I thought, people were very hard on the Chinese after that, and very easy on them before, it's, but people were just tell, talking about reforms. And I felt just by being there, when you're a traveler and you're around, people tell you things. They say, by the way, you know, they, and they might tell you a confidence. And they say, when you go away, will you, will you tell people, you know, we don't, these reforms aren't going fast enough, or, you know, we're sick of this, that, and the other. And you're not a tourist. You're not just sort of like a kamikaze bombing in there and looking for something. You're, you're really just wandering aimlessly and grinning like a dog. 
One of uh, Milroy the magician's wishes is to become anonymous, to be anonymous, to be become hidden. And it strikes me that that's a risk for you as a writer. If you're too well known when you travel, you lose that quality of anonymity. That's true, uh, and it's probably the worst thing about travel when uh, 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 when people recognize you and they and they start telling you. It's like being in a any any situation where you, people say, "What do you do?" And I say, "I'm a writer." And they say, oh, "I got a story for you." Oh, boy, do I have a story for you! And they, rather than um, and th the story that they're deliberately telling you is different from the one that. Um, that they should be telling, or that you might be eliciting from them. A writer shouldn't be the center of attention, and a travel writer shouldn't be someone. I don't think any of us should be someone. It's better to uh, listen or, and, and perhaps ask questions than um, be talking all the time. So it's, it's, and it's not, it's not helpful. Um, I, it, it, when, when I, in, the, in the Pacific, when I was recognized, I always thought that was an interruption of what I was supposed to be doing. So book tours are kind of in that another world between sort of traveling anonymously and being recognized and not and having to answer questions rather than get to ask them. Yeah, well, the, the, the book tour is a function of uh, the publishing. The publishing we're, we're, we write our books and then they say, okay, get out there, Paul, and sell it. You know, and sell it. You know, times are hard. It's recessionary times. But it's not bad. You're uh, asking me questions, and everyone's being patient and 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 listening. It's I don't I don't see you know this many people in a in a month of Sundays. If you're writing, you're alone, and uh, you're for for might be a year or two. So it's the upside of of a book tour is that people are listening to that you have people to talk to, giving you and being nice to you, and. Uh, and a lot of them, and you, st I've, and so it's a very pleasant way of traveling. It, it's hard to continue uh, writing. Um, if I'm working on something, your life gets put on hold. So that's the bad part. Paul Theroux, author of Milroy the Magician and squillions of other books, many of which have been made into uh, major motion pictures. And uh, thank you very much for being a guest on West Coast Live. My pleasure. Paul Theroux. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.